Hello and welcome to his Dropping at the Movies. I'm Mike. And I'm Jose. And we've just seen The Lighthouse, written and directed by Robert Eggers, who previously did The Witch in, uh-huh. I think, 2015 or so. You've seen that. Something like that. Yes, I have seen it. And, uh-huh. and I like that very much, actually. Which was... was that? What was that? It was kind of a ghost story. It was to do with witches in New England, I think in the 17th century. A family is cast out, and then a baby is stolen, and then kind of supernatural things happen. All sorts of things start kicking off. Well, this has elements of the supernatural too, mm. in some respects, although it's also kind of psychological. Yes, I couldn't tell. Yeah, it's certainly ambiguous, and yeah. there's lots of room for interpretation as to what's going on here. So, uh, The Lighthouse is, Willem Dafoe plays uh, an elderly, uh, well, elderly might not be the right word, but he's old, and he's done it for a long time, lighthouse keeper. He's interested in myth and what the Robert Pattinson character uh, who works with him refers to as old wives' tales, doesn't really believe in them, uh, so they clash. Uh, Robert Pattinson is a much younger guy who uh, hasn't worked as a lighthouse keeper before. So the, the, the film kind of starts off with questions of uh, who are these people and why are they there and what's driven them to this place. Willem Dafoe's character really is at home there and Robert Pattinson sees it as an escape. And so you start to kind of get into why are they there, what drives them there and how are they going to cope and it's supposed to be a four week job that turns into a much longer one when a storm strands them there mm. and things start to kind of devolve into psychological and psychosexual weirdness spoilers will be coming up it's not a film with uh, huge twists but it gradually moves but we're going to talk about the whole thing so mm. spoilers ahead yes so I mean one of my questions coming out of the cinema one of my many questions because I think it is a film that you leave the cinema thinking, what was it about? Yeah, yeah. what happened there? And I thought, is it a gothic? You know, and I, I kind of, I wasn't sure. But I see from looking at the British Library's definition or loose definition that it could certainly kind of be seen as that way. It's kind of set in a liminal place, in a faraway place. It has kind of elements of sexuality and repressed sexuality and kind of non-acceptable sexuality yeah, it kind of it touches on moments that are kind of forbidden it says here terror versus horror uh, which is an interesting one for this power and constraint which is you know one of the themes of the film mm. uh, there's something about clashing time periods which I'm not sure it is kind of you don't know when it's set, really, do you? I mean, you know... It seemed clear to me, I must say. How so? Well, I, I didn't have a question. It seemed obvious to me that this was late 1800s. Uh, I just didn't really have a question about that. The accents, the environment, the kind of place and the equipment that they used and the dress and that kind of thing, it didn't seem to be suggesting uh, an ambiguous time period. Well, for me, it could be anywhere between the time of the publication of... Moby Dick. Moby Dick and the 1920s. Right. You know, so... Okay. You know, but so that's it, d- quite a long time. D- does that make a difference to you? That it has this... That it could be seen as having a wide sort of birth? No, except that it's a period that isn't precisely evoked uh, or presented. Okay. So that's kind of interesting, I think, you know, because... Mm. I mean, obviously all films, in a way, are about us. So they are about now. Right. So the choice of period is an interesting one. I mean, to tell this story, you need that period, right? Because otherwise they wouldn't be so remote and so cut off and so, yeah. Mm. 
But it's also interesting that you know it's a time period that could cover such a sure such a long period of time. Yeah, I mean, I must say that as soon as the images, the images really evoked kind of Victorian photographs for me. Mm. You know, and and they're and they're very beautiful. Yeah, so it's that it's that period. But that in itself is a very long period, right? Eighteen thirty to nineteen oh one or something. <laughs> you know, so. Um, Anyway, I think it's very interesting also because when I tend to think of Gothic, I tend to think of women, though clearly, you know, that's not true. I, you know, something like Dracula, I imagine, is like a horror. It's like Gothic horror, you know. I would suppose that I'm no expert on that either. Uh-huh. But Dracula's all about women as well. I mean, there's a huge kind of sexual component to Dracula. Yeah, of course. Kind of puncturing yes. women and, well, and young and, virgins. And, and not just women. I mean, the thing about Dracula is that it's omnisexual. Yeah. Yes. I mean, the bite is a sexual mingling, right? Which can result in death, you know. But nonetheless, it's you know, it's yeah. not just women that get bitten. Is it? So. Yeah. <laughs> Gothic wasn't a word that occurred to me, although I can totally see what I did to you. But words that occurred to me were like Lovecraftian, with uh, okay. particularly with the the imagined sort of Kraken type thing that was you know that came in every now and again. And, and also mythological. Sorry, it's not one of my things. What is Lovecraftian? You know, H.P. Lovecraft, the, uh, I suppose he probably was Gothic to some degree, writer who wrote about Cthulhu, which was like a big alien demon thing. I, I don't know. I'm not that familiar right, with Lovecraft okay. either, but, but there's, a, there's a thing about kind of big monsters. Oh, okay. <laughs> well, I didn't, I don't know. I mean, uh, the monsters here were all classical in a way, weren't they? Like, yeah. you know, mermaids and Neptune or... Well, this is the other thing that occurred to me, is mythological ideas that I think the film brings up explicitly at points in dialogue. I think there's, there's reference to Prometheus and I think to Proteus. Yeah, well, um, yeah. And Proteus was this kind of, he was like a god of the sea, kind of knowledgeable figure. Uh, I mean, I, th- I think those two can be closely identified with the two main characters. Yeah. I think you can see the older figure, the Willem Dafoe figure, as embodying... Proteus. Mm. Uh, there's a, there was a shape shifting aspect aspect to Proteus as well, which I think you can see in his kind of burst into anger. Like he's, he has a personality. Uh, Defoe's character, this is Thomas, which can explode. He can be extremely friendly and likable, but the moment that you know something doesn't go his way or Robert Pattinson offers some argument, he'll tell him off. And you get to that weird, fantastic point where they're drunk, where Pattinson is telling him he's cooking his shit. And he says, I know you like my lobster. And then he spends about a minute cursing uh, Robert Pattinson with you know, the kind of the fates of all the gods. It's, like, it's a real overreaction. <laughs> yes. You know? So he has it's that. It's kind of, yeah, it has elements that are like, I don't know, biblical or something, really. And then on the yeah. other hand, you have Pattinson, which, who I think, by the end, I was really thinking Prometheus with going up to the lighthouse. Mm. And that's like going up Mount Olympus and taking fire. And then, of course, that final image lives in a kind of netherworld between real and sort of mythological or imagined. Like, you can't, you don't know exactly how uh, real it is supposed to be, I think. But it is a Prometheus image of the bird pecking at his Oh, that is for sure, referring to that. Um, You know, with all that that connotes, actually. Yeah. Yeah, because Prometheus was... He stole fire from the gods, and he was punished by having his liver pecked out every day. That's right. Chained to a rock. Yes, and that's kind of one of the ending images in the film. I mean, I'm I'm kind of fascinated by it, really. So, so on the one hand, I was I was transfixed by the images, 
right? I think, you know, from the moment the film started, I thought, oh my God, how great, right? Because it's in 4-3. It's actually not quite in 4-3. I did check. It's ah. in one to one nine, and 4-3 is the equivalent of 4-3-3. to three, three. So it's a little bit narrower. Yes, it is, um, actually. I mean, it did, it did, I, was trying to, I was trying to think, is it a square frame? Is it 4-3 or is it something else? Because it, it doesn't... But, you know, in, early but films, before they figured out how to do the strip with the sound, they were 1.19. Yeah, yeah. This is this is also what so, I was looking up. Um, one to one nine is it's the movie tone ratio, mm. which was used uh, briefly. This is a Wikipedia used briefly during the transitional period when the film industry was converting to sound from nineteen twenty six to thirty two, approximately. And the lighthouse is actually name checked on that Wikipedia page as a film that has used it, as right. well as Sunrise and M and Hallelujah. Oh, fantastic! Well, it's a fantastic ratio, actually, and it's really suitable for people's faces. You know, and that's the thing that is most kind of stirring and also kind of mysterious, really, in the in the film. You know, because just the way that Willem Dafoe looks, you know, is really kind of extraordinary. Oh, yeah, you know, aside from what you know what he does, I mean, just the look and how he's filmed, and it's just thrilling to see. Um, what was the film where he played Van Van Gogh? Van Gogh. Van Gogh. The, that we saw, which we didn't like very much, but he was incredible. He was incredible, and um, and he has a similar heavily. It's like he, he's like he's encased within his own facial hair. Yeah, and it drives him mad. Um, he's he's fantastic to see, and actually, I I also loved watching um, Patterson, you know, because he's got he's got a strange face, yeah, that can seem both very beautiful and also kind of ordinary, yeah. Okay. Like, and he's often very quiet here. Yeah, like, you know, this is a film that his part is kind of constrained and hidden. Yeah, and then he explodes. But, you know, a large part of the performance is like a kind of a closed-in one, yeah? Mm. You know, his face when he's taking coal in the rain or, yeah, it's all about kind of keeping things in. I mean, that is the part he's playing, right? He's hiding this big secret, mm. you know? And in some moments... He looks incredibly beautiful, and in some moments he just, you know, he looks like a kind of a Victorian photograph of an ordinary workman, you know. And I thought that was kind of interesting, the way he kind of... I must say, I thought he was always beautiful. Oh, did you? Yeah, that's kind of what I found, like... Oh, well. It, although, I think there are aspects to, you know, you, you can see those those images of Victorian workmen evokes, particularly when his face gets dirtier. Yes, um, I think you can see it, and when he's when he's you know, moving the wheelbarrow, things like that. Like when he's working, you can see. It. I think he embodies it quite well. But still, I was never, I never kind of forgot that he's a real specimen. <laughs> well, the film keeps telling you that he is, you know, and that he's got eyes like a pretty lady, and so on. And of course, in other films, I have seen that. But you know, credit to him because I think a lot of the time he really makes you kind of see like a you know mm. a kind of a nineteenth century working man really. His accent as well, I think, is very good. And that's one of the things that pointed me towards locating the film in the late 1800s because it's an accent that is... It's basically Bill the Butcher mm. in Gangs of New York. It's that late 1800s New York mm. accent that's kind of... It's quite thick. Mm. Um, there's some quite kind of idiosyncratic about it. And I think he pulls it off extremely well. Yes. It's very, it's very convincing. The film is basically a two-hander. So without the performances, it's with sync. On the other hand, there's much more than the performances, right? I think, you know, the lighting, the cinematography, you know, the types of images that are worked through are extraordinary. 
and actually some of them like you know the scenes with the mermaid and the scene uh, yeah sex mm. with the mermaid and the mermaid is this object of fantasy but it's a moment of fantasy that's also riddled with disgust and horror right it's yeah. kind of it's interesting that it's in his head you know there's both this great need this desire he can't stop jerking off and on the other hand most of the images that you see of him in sexual situations are a combination of disgusting things hmm. along with great arousal, right? It's squid slithering over his body, you know, a vagina that's kind of like an opening, like in an oyster or something. Right? I know. When have you ever seen a mermaid's vagina before? That was a brand new one, <laughs> new one to me. <laughs> But yeah, but it's right. It's as the camera moves down her body, it starts off on her face, which is beautiful. Actually, and, and he, well, she appears to be dead at first, so that's a kind of complicating factor too. Um, but it starts off on her face, which is beautiful, moves down towards her breast, and then as it moves further down, you start to see kind of gills uh, in her side, and, and that's when he becomes disgusted. I think the music might have a, a moment there as well that kind of stings, yeah, um, to to evoke that shock and disgust in him hmm. uh, and, and at the end when he's attacking Willem Dafoe that kind of moves between a violent uh, outburst and fighting to a sexual encounter and back and forth in the kind of images that switch out yes what he's sort of seeing yes um, you know and also um, there is that gay thing as well right like you know the moment where they're dancing and they're about to kiss and then the fists come flying but then it goes back to being affectionate. So I mm -hmm. thought that was interesting. Yeah. I mean, I think if it wouldn't have gone back to being affectionate, it would have, I would have read it a different way. Yeah, because Defoe ends up on his lap, doesn't he? Yeah. And that's actually when he spills his secret. That's right. Yeah. So on, on the one hand, the range of sexuality shown is kind of quite uh, wide. Yeah, it's a spectrum. On the other hand, at each moment, it's filled with disgust or, you know, mm. violence or, yeah. yeah. And then I also thought the film had a really interesting gaslight aspect, mm. right? You felt that Patterson in some ways was like Ingrid Bergman in Gaslight, yeah, with Charles Boyer fooling her into thinking that she's going mad, right? And, you know, and there is a thing here where, you know, you, there's a moment in the film where you realize, oh, you know, this is Willem Dafoe trying to make um, the Robin Patterson character think he's going crazy. Right, and then but then you wonder, is he really or isn't? Yeah, is Willem Dafoe trying to make him crazy, or has he actually? Well, so the moment is, Panson is fixing to leave, uh, and he's getting the boats, pushing the boats out to sea uh, to escape. I mean, he probably would die in the storm, but still, he wants to leave. And Dafoe chases him and says, "Don't leave me!" And he smashes up the boat with an axe. And then inside, Dafoe says to him, "You smashed up the boat." So, what is your view? Do you think? That Willem Dafoe was trying to make him go mad? It re yeah, I, I was confused. I think because that was the only moment that really explicitly happened, I took that to be Dafoe lying to him. Yeah. I didn't take it to be Pattinson actually having done it and we were inside his head, so we didn't see that. Yes. That's not what, how I took it. I understood it to be Dafoe actively gaslighting him. Because, you know, the whole thing with the drink at mm. the beginning where... You know, he doesn't drink and, you know, the foe forces him to drink and gets him drunk. And and then actually kind of, you know, later on you say, oh, he was drunk. <laughs> yeah. And uh, so, but we've seen the process of getting him drunk. So actually that leads me to think that it's active gaslighting on Willem Dafoe's part. But then you ask why? Yeah, well, there's a whole thing about control 
uh, which is a word you brought up earlier from the Gothic yes. uh, definition. Um, going on with Willem Dafoe's character, his character is associated with imagery of locks and keys. Um, yes. There's the lock that goes up to the top floor of the lighthouse, and there's the lock to his cabinet where he keeps his what you discover is a log that he's been keeping on Pattinson. Yes. Uh, later on, and that's saying that Pattinson, you know, wants in on. He tries to get into both of them, and. The drinking as well, you know, again, there's an aspect of control there to the point where eventually he says, I won't take no for an answer. Yes. So it's, I think it's a, it's a developing thing with his character. Though. I don't think he starts off, he doesn't seem to start off having a plan to control Pattinson the way he does, but it's something that he kind of... No, I don't think so. I think develops. it's there from the beginning. Okay. You know, because like this whole thing of how you speak to me and don't do this and like I won't have that and, you know, like, yeah. Yeah. I mean, that, that goes right from the beginning. That's true. You know, where but that, that's a, that's a kind of that's official sort of boss. No, thing. it goes. It, it becomes no, more serious. No, it goes way beyond that from the beginning to the point where Patterson says, "You know, I didn't sign up to be a slave." Well, that's know. a little bit later on, though. Yeah, but it refers back to these things in the beginning. Mm. That what's being asked is extraordinary servility. So I think these attempts at controlling are there from the beginning, and again, you don't know why really. So. I mean, you do know, or you find out, that he killed the previous co-worker. Yeah, the, yeah, the lighthouse keeper. So, um, and in a way, that's a secret that they have in common, isn't it? Because, you know, that's... Because Pattinson's also killed someone, someone. which is why he's, he actually took his identity. Yes. And he's escaped. Though, that also wasn't clear to me. I mean, he says, you know, they were logging, and at one point, the guy was in front of him. You know, but, but actually, you don't... I didn't quite get why he killed them. Did you? I wasn't sure whether it was active or whether it was more that he was responsible for the guy's death through inaction. Uh-huh. Um, and then kind of... And if that was the case and it was more of an accident, he still wouldn't be able to continue where he was because no one would believe him or whatever. That would provide to me a logical reason to... Uh, drop everything and actually see the guy's identity and, and make mm. a change. And because it's a huge, because he's not cut out for lighthouse keeping really, and you know it's not the kind of world that he's used to. So obviously it's a massive change, but it makes enough sense to me that it having been more of an accident than a deliberate thing would justify that. But I I didn't find it clear though. No. Um, and the other, so let me ask you questions about other things that I didn't find clear. So the scene with Neptune staring into his eyes and it's almost like drawing his life force with a light beam or something. Which what? bit was that? Is that when Defoe kind of transforms into the kind of barnacle thing? No, that's later on. So this is an image of Neptune, a very muscly guy, which probably is... Oh, is Defoe. this on top of the lighthouse? When he, uh, he, I think, is it Pattinson imagines, or he hallucinates whatever, going up to the top of the lighthouse and seeing the body, and the body is his own. And yes. then when he looks up, there's that image of the strong... That's right. Yeah. And and he's doubled in that. So mm. you see him twice. You see him and then a figure of his imagination that is also him or... Yeah. yeah. I thought that was Defoe, actually. I mean, ah, a, a more muscly it could, it could version. Be. It might have had Defoe's head and face, though. Um, yeah, um, it, could, it could be. It could be Defoe. Yeah. Um, I mean, I think the thing is, Defoe is definitely cast as a kind of god in this. Mm. I think that probably goes hand in hand with the control thing you were talking about. Mm. Call me this, do that. He's definitely exercising control. There's no question about that. To the point where he actually controls the way he speaks. You know, he doesn't say, not yes, sir, it's I, sir. 
you know. Yeah. Um, and the, he really buys into the to mythology, as I say, and kind of folk wisdom, if you like. The thing about not killing a seagull mm. uh, because it's bad luck because they contain the souls of dead sailors. And of course, Pattinson does kill a seagull. I mean, I thought it's Chekhov seagull. Yes, <laughs> which I thought was a very clever thing to think. Um, <laughs> uh, you know, when you mentioned "Don't kill a seagull," he's going to kill a seagull at some mm. point. And of course, bad luck does start before them. Although it's not directly tied to anything, you can't. You know, the film doesn't say this happened, therefore this happened. It's all in a. It's all in a. It's kind of a, a world. Yes, I like that. You know, because there are things that are not made too much of, mm. but it's like seagulls are given will. Yeah, so that tapping on the window. Yeah, the seagull yeah. has it in yeah. for Robert Pattinson. That's right. He pays attention to him um, and won't leave him alone. Yeah, so um, I thought all... And of course was... he wins in the end because he gets to eat his guts. Yeah. So good on him. Well, that was a different seagull. True. Bye. <laughs> the gang of seagulls. Yeah. yeah. Um, um, so, so... I loved it though. I mean, one thing I want to say actually is I had a much, much better time than I expected. For one thing, I mean... For some reason, I just thought, I'm not going to tolerate this. I thought it would be a bit like Bait, um, where I was kind of interested, but didn't really feel... And I was just... I was with this 100%. The audio-visual design, the sound as well. Yes. Um, the kind of crashing waves, the world that they're in, the, the, the kind of madness in the characters' faces, the, the, the drunkenness, the way that scenes develop and change and shift and all. I just thought, God, this is ex wonderful filmmaking. Yes, I wasn't sure it was. Um, well, I mean, you know, so there were some things that I was sure that I was sure of. Like I said, I thought Defoe and Patterson were extraordinary and filmed to look extraordinary. I loved the cinematography of the film. I loved kind of all of the interactions, right? But then I wasn't sure I loved the film. And then there were things that just took you by surprise and that are kind of mysterious and intriguing, right? Like the mermaid thing, the sex, you know, um, the way that Patterson has filmed wanking, which is like almost the saddest, <laughs> most stressful thing ever, really. Yeah, it's kind of it's not a source of joy or release or no, it's something that he ha- he just has to like get get, get it out, but yeah. it's almost like grief or something, right? Yeah, he's hunched over. Yeah, but there's also something beautiful to that image. I think there's something beautiful in his body, mm. and then there's also something the way that he's kind of ripped. You know, kind of, kind of toned, whatever, uh, suggests. Um, I think the kind of gills on that mermaid. Yeah. There's, there's this kind of similarity there. There's a kind of shifting aspect. I think there was a thing where you, you see the you see the under the kind of bowels of the lighthouse and yeah. the, the kind of vast machine that is uh, required to keep it running and keep the thing turning. Um, and it's loud and uh, aggressive, and it has this um, what's the word like a rotor wheel it's yeah. going round and round like a st- steam engine that's what it is steam engine and then a little bit later when Defoe is telling him to scrub the floor and scrub it again and again and again he's actually watching over him work mm. his hand scrubbing the whatever it was the, the some container is moving circling the same way and speeding up and speeding up and it has that same has that dehumanising quality I think yeah. links the two things and there's a further dehumanising aspect later on where the thing with the dog bark like a dog Yes. Uh, and burying him. That was amazing. But let's go before that. Sorry, because, yeah. you know, one of the things that's set up is there are these different spaces. So there's the outside, which is really inhospitable. It's stormy, windy, rainy, rocky. Yeah. And you mainly see Patterson with a wheelbarrow, you know, pushing coal in the rain. Yeah, kind of. 
um, it's full of imagery like that of just exhaustion or work or stress or yeah, mm. in this very hosp uh, in hospital environment. Then there is the places they share together in the lighthouse, the living spaces, the various living spaces. But then there's the upstairs, which she's not allowed to go in. And that's also very gothic, mm. to not be allowed to go into certain spaces, yeah, mm. where then somebody always goes and finds something terrible yeah, that yeah. you can't return from. Uh, and of course, this is where the light is. And I thought that was so interesting because at the end of the film, when he goes into that light, yeah, into the top where the light is, and he opens the door of... Well, it opens. He doesn't even touch it. Okay. It opens for it him. Opens. It opens. It felt to me like a spaceship or something. Yeah. You know. Yeah, it did. It felt like an. It felt like a nineteen fifties version of a. I spaceship. know what you mean. It had like uh, a two thousand and one, like that's the obelisk mm. type thing, like ah, and you feel so small yes. in that moment compared to whatever this thing is. Yeah. Also, the way it looks as well, the Fresnel lens that puts out the image is is a weird looking alien, uh, geometric thing. Yeah, and then he gets his eyes he's blinded by the light or there's a beam of light that hits his eyes or something isn't there mm. or a power source of light that kicks him down the stairs of the whole lighthouse right i mean so what do you make well how do you interpret that? well I think it was kind of it made me think of marcellus wallace's briefcase in pop fiction thing of like we can't possibly show you what it is but it's just a light and it's powerful and like, it means everything but it did a funny thing where the image it it becomes so bright that i think it might even turn Negative, mm. like the because look, I'm looking at the inside of his mouth, which should be oh, dark, yes. and it's brighter than everything else. Yes, so I wonder yes. whether they actually, whether it was a photo negative, yes. and then the sound yes, as it well. Looks like it was actually the sound as well. He's screaming, um, but it becomes distorted in a in a way that seemed conspicuously digital, conspicuously kind of the way that sound the sound was kind of clipped and distorted as he starts screaming, um, didn't seem to me like an effect that you would associate with analogue sound, particularly, you know, kind of phonograph, whatever, of the era. It was something that really seemed to be a digital hmm. effect. There was, and so there was, there was a kind of breaking down of sound and image at that point. And I don't know whether it means much that it, that it seemed digital to me. I don't know if that's particularly meaningful, but it's like the... the image becomes negative, possibly, certainly blown out. The sound becomes blown out. And that is like that's all the information that we have, right? That's what a film is. So in looking at this thing and and whatever it is, everything starts to break. Yes. So is can that be tied to the myth of Prometheus? You know, with the light and the punishment and the thing about Prometheus was fire was. If Prometheus was around today, he'd be a hero, mm. right? Like the gods shouldn't have shit to themselves. Yes, you know, <laughs> you'd be here. Well, one percent. <laughs> so then, it's, the analogy isn't uh, too straightforward because whatever Pattinson's doing up there is really more personal. Like saying so it's it's more you have this and I don't, and I want to see it. Right. Um, it's certainly not about whatever's up there. I'm going to bring to people. Like that's nothing. No, but um, yeah. But there is a, there is definitely a sense of it's about it's about defiance, really. Is it or? I don't know, well... Ambition? I don't know. I mean, the story is basically this broken man comes to escape, yeah, comes to this um, forsaken place in the middle of nowhere where no one, where there's no one except this one person, yeah, and he comes to build a new life, right? That's what he comes there for. He takes on a different identity, 
in order to start a new life, to get a second chance at life. Yeah, that's mm. the premise, really. Um, and then, of course, he encounters Willem Dafoe, who's intent on controlling him, on making him his slave, on, you know, driving him mad and gaslighting him constantly. You know, and then he revolts, but he revolts out of desperation and madness. And then he gets punished at the end with, like, the seagulls eating his stomach. So I'm not quite sure <laughs> what to make of it. But yeah, he didn't seem to deserve... Uh, the G, but there, there's some there's something about kind of not not fitting in the world uh, he's in I suppose like he doesn't have a relationship with with the world that he's coming into and the nature around him you know the nature no. to find him hostile immediately yes. it like the, the seagull has a problem with him before he has a problem with the seagull yeah um, and he's just trying to get on with it and he does seem to be there kind of whatever might have happened in his past he's there kind of for the right reasons early on he wants yes. to do this job earn his money save it up build his new life. Yeah. I mean, um, he says, basically, all he wants to do is is build a roof. Yeah? Yeah, and, yeah. Eventually yeah. I'll have a roof over my head yeah. and then no one can tell me what to Which do. Which seems to me very modest wants and he's denied them. Yeah. And it didn't seem to me, at least initially, that, that Defoe either was that hostile. I know what you're saying about the... about the. Uh, I found him hostile immediately. About the control. But, um, but that to me seemed like, you know, he's the guy who's been there forever. He knows how things are done. And... He shouldn't have to pay too much respect to this new guy. He needs to tell him how to do things. And, no, but and, there was a tone, and I I did read it as hostile, actually. Okay. Though, you know, I did expect, oh, maybe, you know, because films with old curmudgeons usually begin like that, and then they turn sweet. <laughs> this one does not turn sweet at all. You know, and actually there's that whole thing about why did you tell me your secret? Yeah, why did you the spill pro- the beans? Why did you spill the beans, which gets repeated like 40 times, right? <laughs> as if there's been some transgression rather than, you know, mm. a welcoming confidence. Yeah. yeah. Why'd you spill your beans on me? Yeah. The voiceover goes, I didn't want to hear your secret. And then, of course, once he does know the secret, that gives him leverage and power and whatever. But I must say, I didn't find him especially hostile straight away. I thought there was... It started off as a, as a kind of employer-employee relationship to me that didn't seem too out of place. And as the film goes on, and you get to the point where you get the, you get this questionable gaslighting, possible gaslighting. Uh, it's become much more uh, hostile by then. No, there are, there are too many constant threats and humiliations and so on to make it just seem like an ordinary... Well, yeah, yeah. after you know. two weeks he says, will you please call me by my name? Yeah. And he does. Well... And he doesn't take the piss out of him for no, it. No, well, uh, you know, it's an American film, you know, so actually the assumed equality is straightforward should have been straightforward and it isn't you know well there's no, I don't, there's no equality there he's his boss yes um but there's a difference between a boss relationship and a slave relationship right i really don't see it i i see it as a boss relationship but well i don't uh i think it transgresses employer employee relations uh and it's an attempt to control and humiliate uh in fa- and in fact is what happens in the film yeah that's no, wrong so but- you know, it, and it starts on a note that you can s- understand, yeah, like, you know, a really controlling prick of a boss or something, hmm. to then, you know, being murderous. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I'm not going to defend the guy's actions later on, but that, it's, that's not how it starts off for me. Well. Um, I, the, I mean, the thing later on when he discovers that he's been making all these notes in his book to basically get his pay docked and severance without paying all the rest of it you know that is obviously um 
disgusting. And that's and and had things quote unquote gone to plan, that's something that would just happened at the end. Yes. And he'd have uh, basically had, had got all this work out of him for free. So there's a, there is a kind of slave thing going on there, but not on the kind of day to day basis. He has to work extremely hard, and he makes him, and he punishes him for not doing mm. things well enough. But it does think, seem to me like more of a prick of a boss, as you say. Than well, but it's to an extreme. Anyway, I yeah, we can disagree on that. Mm. Um, one of the problems with the film that I had was that when they began to quote old songs or poems or verse or whatever they were doing, I couldn't understand the words. I agree. For the most yeah. part, I couldn't really... Yeah. Think, yeah. And that was a problem because you felt they were important, but I couldn't make them out. And there were moments where I thought, oh, I wish I was watching this in a subtitled version. Yeah, I know what you mean. Uh, that's a problem. Because, you know, there are elements that you think are significant to the film, but that you couldn't experience yourself. Yeah. And that's why, and like, the you filmmaker's just, fault. You just uh-huh. pick up, I just vaguely picked up on, you know, the word Promethean. Yeah. Or, or one of the two other things. And you thought, oh, that, that is meaningful. Yeah. Because I started to tie it to everything else. And if, if I'd understood more, if I'd heard more, this, um, I wish I had understood the words. Yes. <laughs> Um, it's a film that I want to figure out better, you know, but that actually it's mysterious and intriguing and beautiful to look at and very suggestive. And I don't mind that I don't understand absolutely everything about it. Yeah. I was thinking about, it made me think about Parasite and Uncut Gems because we were talking about this on Facebook recently when everyone was talking about Parasite yesterday because it just won uh, Best Picture, won four Oscars. And everyone's very happy with it. But, and then we were talking about actually how much, well, what are its qualities, what are its failings, that sort of thing. And I was saying that the concise version, I suppose, of the conclusion that I'd come to about Parasite was as clever as all of its structures and uh, and kind of design are, it didn't make me feel anything, and that was a problem to me. And, you know, I compared it to Uncut Gems, which is all feeling. You know, it makes me feel so much and it's so full of, of movement and emotion and tension. And this, I started off going, I don't know what's happening, but I feel it. Yeah, right. I feel the mood. Ah, I so feel, you know. So a very interesting counterpoint to that. I, I feel, I think it's very beautiful and it's very suggestive and it's really interesting and it's mysterious in a good way. Yeah, it's like you want to, you want to solve this mystery. It draws you in. Mm. Um... On the other hand, I have a problem with a film that I can't quite figure out what it's about yet. Yeah? Yeah. You know, so, I mean, we've talked, it's about power, you know, and there are elements of desire, but if you think about the story, like, you think, you know, what is it saying? Yeah, like, kind of, I can tell you the plot very clearly, but I'm still not sure I can tell you the story or its meaning. Mm. So, so... Yeah. I do know what you mean. It's to me, it, it it is about that feeling of that clash of male egos that can't cope with each other, and and are trying to control each other or escape from each other's control and that sort of thing. It, it is all about feeling. Here. I don't think it's I don't think it's so easily analysed as though it's code. Yes. You know, it's not like this means that and that means that and this is the answer. It is. It is about the atmosphere and tone. Um, yes. Um. Anyway, I thought it was very beautiful, and I recommend everyone see it. And I think it's kind of like a crime that they didn't find room in this year's Oscar nominees for Willem Dafoe. He deserves Mm. it, you know. Yeah, he's got to get one soon, because he was nominated last year as well, wasn't he, for uh, the the Van Gogh film, Act Gate. 
Well, he he definitely deserved one for this film, I think. He was fantastic. Yeah, he was terrific. And so was Patterson. I mean, it's... And so it, was Patterson. They're they soaring. You know, who, um, I was thinking about Patterson, actually, because, you know, he's making such interesting choices. I mean, um, he's someone who I've never... I, I have yet to find the role where I love him in it, right? But if you think that the choices that he's made, I mean, you know, um, the, the film with the... The, the Safties, the good Safties. Time. Yeah, yeah, good times. Uh, the film with Claire Denis. He's been working with such interesting directors. The Cronenberg film yeah, was wonderful. Marvelous. You know, I Twilight. mean, Twilight. I lo- well, I, lo- I loved him in Twilight, and I love the first Twilight. I like Twilight. I think Twilight's um, fantastic. So, movie. but since Twilight, I mean, he's just—he's really been making interesting choices. He was also in this thing, Remember Me, which I don't know was, what that is. It was horrible, and it had this. The most manipulative. It used nine eleven in the oh. most disgusting, manipulative way. He was also in an awful film about Dali. I think he played Dali. Oh yeah, Little Ashes. That's right. It's an awful film. He was in a Herzog film. He played T. E. Lawrence. There you go. So I mean, it's hard to think of a young actor who's making, you know, these um, interesting choices. Really, he's in the new Christopher Nolan Tenet. Ah. Oh. Which I didn't know. Um, okay. And he's also, of course, going to be Batman. Is he? Yeah, do you know? I did not know that. Yeah, no. that's going to be an interesting one. That is interesting. One final thing I'd say is a, a final comparison with Uncut Gems, which is the director, Robert Eggers, is 36 years old. And as we said on the Uncut Gems one, director who's around my age, I just hate them for yes. being successful. Uh, but I really love the Tafty's work. Uh, and I think the similar thing here. I think, you know, this guy... He's just... He's the real deal somehow. Actually, I didn't know until I looked him up after the film that he was young. Yes. Um, you know, and I thought, oh, he must be 95. Right. <laughs> you know, he must have been a real... You're, he's your age slacker. Yeah. But, uh, <laughs> but I think all, all it really goes to show is how much I dislike the success of Ari Aster, who did Hereditary, because I just think it's rubbish and over And I think these guys have feeling and emotion. They can bring it out in their films. Yes. You know? Uh, well, they definitely do that. So... Um, I highly recommend it, really. I mean, mm. like I said, it's a film that I, I really haven't figured out, you know, but but I really want to. Um, and it was so beautiful to look at, and it's got great performance, and it's kind of full of interesting ideas that I'm keen to um, come to a view on. Yeah. And I would urge people to see it at the cinema. Yeah. It's a real treat, audio-visually. Yes. It's, you know, the, 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 the world that it you sink into is so beautifully realised yes I second that so thank you very much for listening we are eavesdropping at the movies and we are on Apple Podcasts Spotify YouTube and SoundCloud on social media we're on Facebook and Twitter at eavesdrop movies and the website is eavesdroppingatthemovies.com thank you very much for listening goodbye